Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Again, good to be here tonight. Good to see you guys. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, This past Sunday night, we had a great time with Mindy Jamison. She came and talked about how we can better understand poverty culture and how we can serve in that culture, how we can, uh, you know, what we can do to to maybe drop some of our our preconceived biases and and, uh, and just be able to love and serve better. And so tonight I want to kind of continue in in that or on that theme in, in loving our neighbors. Back in February, we had a week dedicated to loving our neighbors, right? We talked about mission and some of the things I'm going to talk about tonight, we talked about then and I've talked about since then, um, back in April, shared some things. So some of what I talk about tonight, you're going to say, Jimmy's a broken record. And in some ways, yes. Because it's a message we need to hear over and over sometimes. Um, but we'll talk about some new things. So we do want to continue. We did love your neighbor and, and thought as we went into this week, we could maybe call it how to love your neighbor well. We don't, we don't need to debate who our neighbor is anymore. I think we're all aware of who our neighbor is. Um, it's not just those that are here tonight. It's not just those in our household or those in our circles of influence. It's, it's everybody, right? It's everybody we come in contact. At least that's what I read here. That's, that's who our neighbor is. And we're, we're commanded to love our, our neighbor. So, uh, so hopefully we can take some things away from, tonight, from that tonight. Um, those that were here Sunday night will have the resource cards. Have those available for everybody. And they're just a way of, of, of you having something that when you come in contact with somebody out there, um, you, you might have a re, you'll have a resource that you can offer to them to say, hey, here's some folks that might be able to help with your, whatever your situation is. Just trying to offer up some, some ways that we can better engage those around us that are, that are in crisis, right? Because that's what we're, we're uh, looking to do is to serve those in crisis. Um, so for the sake of time, let's go ahead and jump in. We want to go to uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send that laborers into his harvest. Let's pray again. Father, once again, uh, Lord, we're just so grateful. We pray that tonight, um, Lord, you would help us to understand better um, how to love our neighbors well and uh, understand that it's us that, uh, that have been called into this harvest and also to understand, Lord, that it is your harvest. It's not our harvest. It's not just any harvest, Lord. It is your harvest and you are calling us into that. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I'm going to revisit some things that we talked about recently, um, but I think it's important to set the stage, if you will, for where else we're going to go tonight. Um, So we have Jesus traveling through the cities, throughout the cities and villages, teaching, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease and every affliction. We'll talk more about this shortly, and you've heard me use this language before, but it sounds like a lot like Jesus is out meeting people where they are, loving them as they are, and developing relationships along the way that had to feel a lot like coming home. They had to feel a lot like a safe place. Then we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I'd be inclined to believe that if they were harassed and helpless, just kind of wandering through life with no direction or no shepherd, nobody to guide them, there was probably a great dose of hopelessness as well. Jesus had compassion for them. Definition of compassion is, A definition of compassion is a sympathetic consciousness of others suffering and distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Say that again. A sympathetic consciousness of others suffering or distress together with a desire to to alleviate it. 
think a little simpler definition for me is that compassion is love in action. It's what drives us to do something about the circumstances that have our neighbors in crisis. We can even say that love, as it relates to compassion, is the difference between compassion and pity. We might have pity on somebody, but when we love well, pity becomes sympathy, which fueled by love becomes compassion, and then we can't help but to move and seek the well-being of those around us. Finally, Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's the action part. And who's watched The Chosen? Some of you better get to watching it. Some of you that know who I'm talking to. If you've watched The Chosen, you have this whole new image of Jesus. And you read certain passages and you just picture the character from The Chosen speaking these things. And I picture that same group and I picture that Jesus saying... There they are, boys. Go get them. They're there. Those are the ones. Those are my people. I love those people. Go get them. But first, what you need to do is to pray. Pray for yourselves and others to be sent as laborers into whose harvest? His harvest. The Lord of the harvest. So there should be a great level of humility that comes when we understand that it is his harvest. And we're only able to be sent now because we too have been in a place where Jesus looked at us and saw sheep without a shepherd, helpless and harassed, lost and hopeless, and he had great compassion for us. Dr. Jim Dennison says, we serve others best when we do so out of humility that recognizes our own weakness and brokenness and compassion that seeks their best. I think for us to truly begin to love our neighbors well, we have to sort of live in and from what I talked about before as being the great requirement. Matthew 6, or Micah 6, 8. He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So we don't have to spend time fretting or worrying or debating or arguing about what God has called us to do. We already know the great commandment. Love God, love others. Great commission, go make disciples baptize. And then this great requirement, justice, kindness, humility. That's what the Lord requires. That's what's good. We could talk and debate and argue whatever for days about what justice is. It's a hot button topic today. I did a Google search earlier just to make a point. And you know how when you do a Google search, it gives you uh, how many results and how quickly. It is. So I did a Google search for justice. And in point nine, eight seconds, less than one second, I had 1.25 billion results. I won't be able to get through all of them. <laughs> Try and get through a couple. No. <laughs> Y'all know I need to simplify things, right? So here's what I'm going to go with as far as justice. Justice for me is being sacrificially committed to the wholeness of my neighbors. Justice is being sacrificially committed to the wholeness of our neighbors. Doing whatever it takes to help our neighbors experience wellness and wholeness. Dr. Dennison completes his earlier statement by saying, when we do those things, when we experience humility and compassion, Then we will pay any price to impact our culture with God's transforming word and grace. In other words, we'll do whatever it takes. Kindness for me and in the context that we're talking about is synonymous with compassion. And we talked about humility already. So I've got this sort of working definition of mission. And it's evolving. It was a couple of pages initially. Got it down to a few sentences. Our mission is the daily active pursuit of displaying the humility of Christ that looks not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Having an awareness of our neighbors in crisis and fueled by love and compassion, a desire to help bring in, bring help and hope, being sacrificially committed to their long-term well-being and wholeness. <clears throat> I want to share some numbers and statistics 
I'll, I can have a handout later in the week if, if anybody's interested. Um, I hope it really paints a picture of some of the crisis and trauma that our neighbors are experiencing. There's so much happening in our world, and I could pick several different areas of, of focus, but uh, the areas I want to talk about are, are uh, poverty and homelessness and mental health. I just want to give you a few statistics. <clears throat> Poverty. About 22% of South Carolina families are living in poverty. 22%. About 42% of South Carolina single parent families are living in poverty. Over 40% of single parent families living in poverty. And that poverty line is, people look at it different ways, but that, that number is for a single adult is just over $12,000. And then you can add about $4,500 per dependent in that household. So for a family of four, it's about $26,000 a year. That's, that's poverty for a, a family of four. <clears throat> over 200,000 children in South Carolina are living in poverty. That ought to break our hearts. Homelessness. I'll talk about two different kinds of, of counts. The first count is called the point in time. It's the PIT. At, one, at a given particular time, one day in the year, agencies come together and they count the homeless in their area. A more broad count would be services that, or agencies that do service for homeless people throughout the course of a year. So over a year would be a tally rather than one day or one point in time. The 2019 point-in-time count reported that 4,172 homeless individuals in South Carolina. It's a lot of homeless people at one time. It's in the state of South Carolina, but 1,215 of those are in the Midlands right here. 70% of that is in Richland County. A broader count, the one that went for a year, reported over 11,000 homeless individuals in South Carolina. Percentages for the Midlands and Richland County were roughly the same as, as, as the point of time count. Almost 20% of this number are under the age of 18. So almost 20% of 11,000 are under 18. <clears throat> Homeless students are, are measured or counted by a couple of different standards. They add things like living with family, not their, not their family of origin or other living arrangements, maybe motels or uh, other facilities, not a full-time residence. So those numbers are going to be bigger. But by these standards, there are currently 12,600 homeless students in South Carolina. Again, our hearts should break. <clears throat> Approximately 20% means there's greater than 3,000 of those students live right here in the Midlands. More than 6,000 are kindergarten to fifth grade students. Mental health. One in six adults uses a psychotropic drug. I'm not real bright, so I had to look at what that was a while back. But I, anyway, it's, a, it's a, a, a drug that alters our, our mental state. <clears throat> One in four women have been diagnosed with a mental health condition. I contend that men are equally affected, but they're just less diagnosed. Nearly one in 10 youth experience severe depression. We've got as many homeless and, and uh, unhoused children. No wonder that that many are experiencing severe depression. Almost 20% of South Carolinians are living with a diagnosable mental, behavioral, or emotional disorder. Again, I contend that that number is much higher because of what's not actually reported. Less than half of those will seek treatment and much less will follow all the way through with the course of treatment or recovery plan. About 4% of South Carolinians, that's 180,000 roughly, are living with a severe mental illness. Seven out of 10 adults in the U.S. have experienced a traumatic event at least once in their lives. That's more than 223 million people. One in five girls and one in 20 boys is a victim of child sexual abuse. <clears throat> in 2019, and I apologize for this being a little bit heavy, but I think we need to hear it. In 2019, over 47,500 Americans died by suicide. And there were an estimated 1.3 million suicide attempts. Suicide rates have been rising in nearly every state year after year. And among people aged 10 to 34, suicide is the second leading cause of death in the U.S. 
break that number down a little bit. 47,500 deaths. That's 132 a day. That means that somebody loses a loved one, a son, a daughter, a child, a father, a grandparent, whatever, every 12 minutes. Every 12 minutes, an image bearer of our God, their circumstances were so bad that they saw that as the only way out. I'm legitimately terrified to see the numbers for 2020 and 2021. Rates of anxiety, depression, overdoses, and substance abuse have increased drastically. And I shudder to think how many more have seen no other way out than suicide over the last year and a half. <clears throat> Our neighbors are hurting. They're experiencing trauma and crisis at alarming rates. And we've been called into God's harvest as part of his plan for their restoration and redemption. There's obviously a lot to caring for people in crisis. And we'll talk about some elements of that but I think it can be broken down into three basic ideas or needs. And you've heard me talk about these. You, I keep repeating them. So here we go again. It's help, hope, and home. People in crisis are looking for three things. Help, hope, and home. Reboot Recovery, the group that I'm working with to do our trauma reboot and, and some of this information even, um, they put a lot of content out. Uh, they break it down this way. Safety, stability, and support are things that people are looking for. And see, we can be those things to people. They're not necessarily steps that you'll finish one and move on to the, to the next or a, a set recipe for, for this is how you work through it. They're all intertwined. They're a framework, if you will, as, as we seek to show and share the love of Jesus with our neighbors. <clears throat> In just a few minutes, my friend Sam's going to come up and share some stuff. And, and I think that you'll see through what he shares, the interconnectedness of this idea of help, hope, and home, of safety, stability, and support. <clears throat> what ultimately we're talking about is building relationships and being in community. Help is meeting people where they are, addressing urgent, basic needs, and creating a sense of safety for the person in crisis. Titus 3.14 says to let all our people or let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Hope, people experience hope when we love them as they are, not as we want them to be or think they should be, but right where they are, as they are. With hope, there will always come a sense of stability. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's amazing what happens in people when we just love them. And then home, long-term support, commitment on our part to others for the long haul, continued compassion, kindness, care, and hospitality. It's walking with people to build relationships. It's discipleship. It's being in community. So we're told to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in us when asked. For someone to ask us, there's a, an implied relationship there. There's a closeness that has to happen. Number one, for somebody to see in us. Number two, for them to ask us. How's somebody going to ask about the hope in me if I'm not walking with them? Or if they don't see it? <clears throat> I think it's probably a good place to ask my friend Sam to come up. Sam works with... Uh, with what was formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, is now Crew. He's here in Columbia. I'm going to let him introduce himself a little bit more. But again, I think you'll hear from Sam as he talks um, how these ideas of help, hope, home, security, or safety, security, and stability are interconnected. And uh, just excited to hear what he's got to say. And then I'll come up and just kind of close us out with a few things. So, Yeah, Jimmy said I'm Sam or Samuel either way. Uh, I work for Crew. Some of y'all might be familiar with Crew, Bill Bright, um, Campus Crusade for Christ uh, on college campus, all, campuses all throughout the world. Um, and the thing that a lot of people don't know is there's all these different departments of Crew. So there's campus, you know, Josh McDowell, you might know who he is. There's also um, the Jesus film. You know, I work for a department within Crew called City. So what we really want to do is we want to help share the transforming love of Jesus Christ to see the city transformed. Um, and I do that specifically through uh, supporting people in sex addiction and uh, pornography recovery, helping uh, process trauma and wounds in their lives. I help educate churches and nonprofits like Daybreak or um, 
uh, Lighthouse for Life, um, supporting their work with fatherhood or giving talks about pornography and the impacts of it. And, um, you know, for the past six years, I was at the University of South Carolina working with crew. And the year before that, I was in, in Lebanon working with crew on campuses. This past year, I made the change, right? And Oh my goodness, as Jimmy was talking, I just had flashes of all these students I've worked with for the past six years who really needed support, who really needed help, hope, and home. You know, they needed that stability. And I wanted to share a couple stories with y'all about that. But the first thing I really wanted, you know, as I was like kind of reflecting with, with what Jimmy was saying, I, I was thinking about First Peter 4. And in First Peter 4, it says, the end of all times is near, be sober-minded, uh, and... Uh, because it's for prayer, you know? Um, and what I realized a lot of times is I hear about people who need help. I hear about people who need a home. I hear about all these things and I forget that I, I need to pray, you know? I need to, as it continues to say in First Peter 4, that all of these abilities, the strength, um, the generosity, all this stuff comes from God. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from my ability. Sure, I can show up, but really the thing that I, get to do is show up in the power of the Holy Spirit and come alongside hurting people with the gospel. And the next thing I happen to go to, place I happen to go to is fear, because I'm like, wow, I can be pretty introverted, and there are a lot of humans, <laughs> you know? Uh, some people might get excited. They're like, wow, there's people to hang out with, and I got things to do, and we can have friends, and I'll just, you know, hang out with them until 2 o'clock at night, and they won't have to worry about any problems. And then other people are like, you know, like, I got my family. That's a lot. You know, I'm helping them. And that's a great plate. You know, we need to help and love our families. What I realize a lot of times is I don't remember to pray, no matter what the circumstance, right? And we need to pray in all circumstances, right? And so I brought with me these sheets. Um, there's two sides. This first side has the little tic-tac-toe board. You can play with your kids if you don't want to use the paper, you know, uh, reduce, reuse. And uh, on the front side, it's who are my neighbors that center area. I got this from the art of neighboring. If you've read it, that center square is your house. The top center square is your across the street neighbor. The bottom center square is, you know, your backyard back fence neighbor, right? Um, I would love if you wanted to take the time, fill it out, you know, fill out all, you know, the, all the areas, you know, left, right neighbor, what are their jobs or their hobbies or their names or their kids names? See if you can do it. I tried, and I, I'm missing the backyard people. <laughs> like, I just don't, I've never walked on that side of my block. Um, but then there's also this side, the spheres of influence. Th these really help me remember um, who I'm hoping to be generous with, and, and with the Holy Spirit, with my life, with my finances. And so it breaks it down with acquaintances, friends, close friends, and these people are not believers. I love to put non-Christians in these circles. And when I did it the first time, I realized, wow, I don't have any close friends who aren't Christians. I really want to work on that because my job is to do ministry, <laughs> you know? So I need to find one or three people to make a close friend so that way I can actually do my job, right? So I'll have these in the back. Y'all can, you know, use it for homework or whatever you want to do. Um, and what I would love to share with you about now is a story of a guy named Nick. I was at the University of South Carolina back my second year, and I was getting to hang out with him and share about the gospel. And I was so excited. You know, an, another student, Cade, had brought him in to the group. He, you know, was also struggling with his own rehabilitation story with sex addiction. And so I was so excited that, okay, wow, you're being a catalyst. You're bringing other people <laughs> like you in. And Nick and Cade were both a part of a recovery group. Um, they were processing their trauma, their wounds, you know, things that I, f I feel like y'all are pretty well versed in. Um, and the hard thing with Nick is he was inoculated to the gospel, meaning kind of like a, a vaccine. He had been given the shot of the gospel and it had like kind of done some things. You know, he knew the right answers. He you know, you could bring them to a point, you might tear up a little bit, but like the actual like life-changing fruit-bearing part of the gospel actually never took root in his life. Um, he uh, was a part of a broken family. Um, he had been sexually abused by a family member uh, growing up. His um, mom was pretty absent in his life. His dad's military. And there's just all these places where I'm like, the hope of the gospel is here. 
<laughs> you know, like we have so many places we can start talking about the hope of the gospel. And then I also realized, wow, I can provide you a place to be safe. My house, come over anytime. So sometimes at 2 a.m., he, you know, my house is, you know, four or five blocks away from five points downtown. And so he would literally just come knock, 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 2 a.m., drunk, <laughs> fall to, uh, asleep on my couch. The next morning, I wake him up at 7 a.m., make pancakes, you know, take him to class. You know, this was the lifestyle that I had with Nick. You know, this is a student at the University of South Carolina. The only reason I know him is because I'm hanging out with this kid, Cade, who's coming to recovery group. And after a couple months, <laughs> I started to think to myself, why is this kid coming around? I'm nothing fancy. I'm not fun. You know, <laughs> like I don't do anything. I've got a dog named Alan, two roommates, and, <laughs> you know, Alan's afraid of wood floors. He's afraid of the neighbor uh, when he's wearing a hat, but no other time, <laughs> you know. Uh, he's got, like, his heart disorder. You know, I'm like, I'm nothing significant. I just hang out at my house with my dog and watch Marvel movies. That's about all we got going on here. But this kid, Nick, keeps coming around. Literally, like, every single weekend, I'd be like, oh, okay, we need to save the seat on the couch because Nick's going to fall asleep there, you know, in about two hours, you know. And so he would come around. My roommates began to love him. Um, and this was a place of security. And I think the hardest thing that I had to come to terms with was the right to adore. Like, I personally, in my walk with the Lord, growing up, <laughs> being discipled by my parents, we always had two doors. I, you know, most Southern families probably have two doors, right? You got your front door, and then you got your you know glass screen door, right? Our front door was always open, but it's the neck, the screen door was always shut and it sent the message like, Hey, come in and be welcome. But a lot of times we didn't do that. Right. You know, our neighbors would be outside playing our, for some reason in our culture, my family, we just didn't really, you know, let people in. We could see out, but we wouldn't let them in. And I started to realize as I was walking with the Lord, I was like, dang, I have to give up the right to my door. Like he is allowed in, like he, he is attaching to the hope of the gospel, to the Holy spirit that's in me. So I get to, <laughs> against my flesh, you know, roll down the screen, <laughs> you know, and be like, hey, how are you doing? I'll talk to you through the screen. And, and then, okay, no, actually, I need to open the door. Come sleep on the couch, you know. And the, the passage that really goes through my mind a lot that really supports me in this is in Romans 12. And I'll read part of it, Romans 12, uh, 14. We'll start there. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Oh, my goodness. There were some nights where the hospital would call me because a student uh, named David had, um, he had overdosed. He had suicidal ideation. He, you know, he was um, drinking too much, and he didn't bolus any insulin, and he had de uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. Calls at, like, 4 a.m., you know, hey, David, you know, needs you to come pick him up. You know, we got his insulin levels right, you know, or something like that. So I'd go, bless those who persecute you. <laughs> I really felt persecuted by David a lot. <laughs> you know, like, one day I was uh, coming home from the campus and, you know, shared the gospel with the student. He had accepted Christ. It was really fun. And go open my mailbox, and there's a bill for David made out to my address. <laughs> I was like, what is this? Why is a bill here <laughs> with this kid's name on it? He, his family's in Virginia. What? <laughs> what's going on? Why am I attached to this? Bless those who persecute you. Okay, I'll open my door. You know, like come hang out, come sleep. I'll make pancakes in the morning, take you to class. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Man, it was really fun the day that David, not Nick, the first kid, David decided to go to India with me and share the gospel for two weeks with some professors. Um, I never thought that day would come. David was sleeping around when I first met him. He was self-harming. He had suicidal ideation. He was going out all the time. He was just this kid who didn't give any cares. You know, he had no cares to give at all. And I got so excited the day he asked to go to India with our spring break trip team, you know. And so he, you know, was like, can I go? And I was like, do you love Jesus? <laughs> I'm not really sure, you know. And uh, so we start talking a little bit more. And I realized, no, actually, the gospel has taken root. And now that I think about it, like two years ago, you were wild <laughs> and you were persecuted. Like I felt persecuted. Now I actually enjoy hanging out with you. I think the gospel did take root. I just didn't take notice. Oh, okay. Sure. Come to India. Let's go. Raise some support. Um, and uh, so weep with those who weep was the next line. Okay. <laughs> Guys, I think this is a really hard one because um, it's hard, right? It's hard to sit with people in their sadness. It's hard 
to receive their grief. Um, you walk away tired. Uh, you walk away kind of like, what? Why would? <laughs> yeah, have you ever gone to like um, to play cornhole at someone's house or barbecue or something, and someone starts sharing stuff with you, and you're like, why are you telling me this? I, it might just be because I'm a little introverted, but I'm like, why are you telling me all of this? I'm not like, I don't even know you. I think we need to step to the side, though, because I'm called to weep with those who weep, and I really hear your story, and I think there's something that you're grieving, and I want to, I want to hear that. Uh, and the power of God, like we talked about in First Peter not, uh, 4, like, I'm going to lean on him to provide for me this end times ethic and belief and strength to sit here with you, even though I don't have the emotions to want to deal with you in my flesh. Um, live in harmony with those, uh, with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Guys, it is hard to live that simple, quiet life, you know? Um, you know, drawing that two-mile circle around your house. I mean, like, I'm going to impact this area. This one mile, <laughs> for me, it's like, okay, actually, I need to meet the people behind me, you know? I'm going to, like, I'm going to love these humans. My coworkers, the people I go to the gym with, Alan, you know, and his heart defect, uh, I'm going to love them. I'm going to, you know, recognize, like, I'm not as awesome as I want to believe I think I am, you know, and I'm going to yield my rights to amazingness. I'm going to choose to not do, you know, Puerto Rico. I might, you know, go to Asheville and use that leftover money to help someone uh, pay their electricity bill. Um, it's not because we have to. It's because actually the Lord has brought humility in our life. He's allowed us to see a right picture because of his grace of who he is and who we are. Um, and so my question is, do we take the time to sit and look at the cross to, to become acquainted with the character of Christ? If we want to make a home, if we want to provide hope, if we want to be a family for people, do we make the space to allow Christ to teach us about himself? And I think what I realized the first few years on campus, I was so excited to share the gospel with people, with students. I burn out, though, because I wasn't looking at Christ. I wasn't seeing his character. I wasn't praying to be filled with his spirit. So I, I begged to ask us, like, can we yield? Can we live in harmony? Can we choose to not be haughty? Can we be lowly? Don't be wise in your own sight. Can we yield to the Lord and allow him and his power that he's given us to love the people around us because otherwise, you know, we're going to get tired in seven minutes. At least I will. Um, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I, you know, scrolled through Facebook some this morning and I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, I can't live peacefully with any of y'all. <laughs> you know, Okay, wait, I need to yield to the Lord. I need to like be humble. You know, um, I love how at the beginning of this passage in, in verse nine, it says, let love be genuine. Abhor what's evil, hold fast to what is good. I love that word hold. You know, it's like cling to, become one, like glue, cement. Like hold on to what is good because love needs to be genuine. And it can only be genuine if we are cemented to the cross, if we're held on to Christ, if we are allowing the spirit to work through us. Um, and I just encourage y'all, um, that humble life really does allow us to yield. Um, choosing, you know, let's set one night a week apart as a family to yield to the Lord together, you know, where we pray, we sit around a table. We didn't do that for me, with me growing up. Um, and I, I agree, I'm grieved about that because my parents have a walk with the Lord, but I don't know a ton about it. But if we set some time apart with our family, the people who live with us in those spheres of influence, they then get the benefit of seeing how we see Christ. Um, and that just really changes our lives. Um, live peaceably. Y'all, it's hard. Uh, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So this is my favorite part, because it kind of gives me hope <laughs> a little bit. At least whenever I was working with students, I was like, oh man, David's persecuting me, you know, Nick, you know, and his story is really heavy of, of um, sexual abuse and uh, an absent mom and having to work so hard and having these really big dreams, like I don't have the emotions to bear and to weep with him. Um, and the Lord says, 
don't worry about it. I've got it. I hold eternity in my hand. It is an item for me. I've seen through it. I've established it. I created it. And I will have all things yield to me because vengeance is mine because it's my glory on the line, not your own. And that really changes our perspective. Um, It really causes me to want to yield to the Lord. And so as I think about this passage, I see uh, five things that safe environments are. And that's what I've kind of been talking about this whole time is like, what is a safe environment? A safe environment is one that's dependent on the environment. It literally is dependent on like what's going on in the environment. It, our, is our front door open and is our screen door open, <laughs> right? Or is just our front door open and we're looking out? Um, safe environments are different because of who is present. Um, who's allowed to come into that front door? Do we make space at the table one night a week or hope maybe more, you know, to be with our family and disciple our children or to spend time with our wife or our roommates? Guys, I love it. I live with two other guys, um, super fun, lived with them for like four or five years. And we like come in and we're like moaning and crying and we're like, okay, let's hang out on the couch and talk about it. You know, like I get to now come into this environment um, that's safe because of who's there. Can we yield to the Lord and become safe environments for that neighbor that's across the street or the neighbor that's behind us? Um, I think we can if we yield to the Lord. Safe, safe environments decide to remove barriers. Guys, it's really hard. I work a, a lot with LGBT plus um, individuals, and there's some like barriers I need to remove. You know, There's um, culture that I need to remove. There's my idea of what masculinity and femininity are that I need to remove. So that way, my expectation of who you should be goes to the side, and I can see you, as Christ says, which has come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Safe environments declare home. Like we say, hey, Nick, you can come at 2 a.m. and sleep on this couch, and I will make you pancakes in the morning. I will take you to class at 8 a.m. This is your home. Your mom wasn't there for you. Your dad's not here for you. Your cousin really abused you and hurt you. I'm calling this home for you. Come here. Safe environments develop trust. And this piece takes time. A safe environment really develops trust. It says, you can tell me about the abuse you experienced. You can share with me about how you're self-harming. You can tell me about your porn addiction because we have time together. There's trust here. You've seen me see Jesus and point you to him and not to me because I'm really not that awesome because it says don't be haughty and uh, never be wise in your own sight. I think I am, but I realize I'm not. So I'm going to sit here and I'm going to weep with you and I'm going to build trust with you. I'm not going to expect you to be different tomorrow because Christ has this plan for your life. And I'm just here right now for this one moment and I get to sit with you and I get to weep. I get to be here with you and rejoice that we both didn't realize that you're a Christian and you want to go share your faith. Wow, this is super fun. And so as you know, I close out, guys, I just really encourage y'all, like, how can we make safe environments? Well, we can create safe environments um, by knowing who's there. We can uh, make safe environments by um, determining what kind of environment we create. We can create safe environments by deciding to remove barriers, declaring home, and developing trust. And it's all because we yield to the Lord, uh, because we're not good enough on our own. Um, and it takes a lot of work there. And I really want to remind us of our first point is we are in the, you know, in First Peter 4, it says, um, the end of times is here. Be sober-minded for prayer. Um, let's be realistic about what's going on in our environment so that way we can pray and let that fuel us. Um, so Jimmy's coming back. It's good stuff. <clears throat> I think it's important that we start to understand what safe environments look like. What, what, are, what are places? And, you know, I mean, we've heard all the talk about safe spaces and those kinds of things. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about creating environments where people are understand it's okay to not be okay, where we're able to be vulnerable with each other. We're able to share not only our celebrations, but our struggles. So it's important that we understand if we're going to, if we're going to impact and, and reach people around us, if we want to, if we want to see people around us heal, if we are sacrificially committed to their wholeness, then it's got to start there. We got to have a place where we almost earn a right to speak into their lives. And I want to talk about some practical things. I want to first, uh, with all the statistics I shared earlier, um, 
it's evident that people around us are hurting. Again, now in 20 and 21, things are worse than ever. People who've never dealt with mental health issues are experiencing them in mass uh, with the political climate, social strife, physical crisis. It's no wonder that people are without hope. When asked, all things considered, do you believe the world is getting better or worse? Only 6% thought that things were getting better. People are not hopeful. Where should people turn when they're not hopeful? When they're looking for hope, when they're looking for answers, where should they turn? Us, right? We're the, we're the carriers of hope, right? We're hope dealers. <clears throat> Guess what? They're not. In recent surveys, these were pre-2020, and I've seen a survey more recently that the numbers are elevated, but I couldn't find that one, so I'll share this. Um, Recent survey says that only two out of five people believe clergy to be high ethical and moral, be of high ethical and moral character. Only two out of five people. Only one in five believe clergy to be a viable resource in navigating current social crises and turmoil. So when we want to figure out how do we deal with all this stuff we're dealing with, one out of five people believes you can go to clergy to find those answers. More than two out of five people believe that when it comes to what happens in our country today, people of faith and religion are part of the problem and reject the idea that religious individuals could be a part of the solution. Almost 50%, two out of five people. I don't know about you, but that stings. We're supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to be in situations where people say, hey, tell me about that hope that's in you. But almost half of this country believes that us, that we are part of the problem. And I got to believe that that, 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 that that half that doesn't know Jesus and thinks that we're part of the problem automatically assumes that then Jesus is part of the problem too. Because they don't know him and they're not seeing him in us. So they think we're the problem. We want to help. We know we should. We need to. We've been called to. Um, but we still don't feel equipped or qualified to do it. <clears throat> I'd submit to every one of you that you are equipped and qualified. 2 Corinthians 1, Corinthians 1 tells us that we have been comforted in all our afflictions so that we may comfort others with the same comfort that we have been comforted with. There's a so that there. right? So, so that means what? One thing happens... So that something else can happen. So you have been comforted. You have been shown compassion, grace, love, truth, mercy, so that you can comfort others. How often when somebody comes to you or you're talking to somebody and they start talking about things that they're struggling with or they need help or direction, how often do you immediately start to think, oh, I got to get him over to talk to whoever? I need to send him to the pastor. I need to send him to an elder or need to send him to a counselor or somebody other than me. Who do I need to send him to? Who's the best person? The reality is they're already talking to him. They're already talking to you. You have some form of relationship that has caused this person to say, hey, I'm struggling and I need help. What if that person prayed about it and you're the person God told him to come to? Don't you think he's prepared you and equipped you for that? He's equipped us with all we need to at least start down that road of healing with somebody. He's the one who heals, but he's given us compassion to walk alongside. We'll talk about a few practical things here uh, as we do that. Um, you know, If we keep referring people to other people when they come to us with their struggles and their trials, that two out of five people is going to be three. And then it's going to be four because all they say, what they're going to say is, you know, I went to that church for for help and they they sent me down the road. Or I tried to talk to this person who says he's a a Christian and he told me I needed to talk to somebody else. A couple of things that uh, are first, I think we need to look at there. There is a natural um, obstacle for all of us, I think, um, 
in varying degrees, um, a great limiting factor in our ability to help others. Other than who else can we refer this person to, one of the first things most of us think about is how long is this going to take? I know y'all are much more spiritual than I, so maybe y'all don't struggle with that. We'll talk about that later. I've talked to so many people that say, I don't have time to do this, I don't have time to do that, I don't have time to do that. So I, 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 I can only assume that when somebody comes to them and starts to unload, they're thinking, maybe, and maybe it's not uh, 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 ill-intended, but that natural thought is, gosh, I got, I had all this stuff to do, and man, how long is this going to take? What, what's it going to require of me? What, are, what resources? How much is it going to cost me? <laughs> but I think that first time is, is how much time is it going to take? And I think that's the greatest limiting factor in our ability to help others, our concern for our own time. Now, we've obviously got things that we need to be concerned with with our time, and we do need to have boundaries when it comes to our time, and we need to guard time and, and on. I'm not saying that we're reckless with our time, um, but uh, maybe, maybe compassion means not being quite so worried about our own time or our own pleasures or satisfaction and a little more concerned about others. We always talk about people, in, especially in recovery, we talk about people needing to be ready and willing. they got to be two things. You, you can't, I don't think there's, there's going to be success if you're not both. And, and ready refers to, it, it kind of has this, is this idea of time. Willing is more the attitude. So somebody's going to be ready and willing. I'll use getting in shape as an example. I'm not working. I got all the time in the world to go to the gym, but I just don't have a desire. I'm ready, but not yet willing. I'm working 80 hours a week. I can't get to the gym, but I really, really, really want to go work out. I'm willing, but I'm not ready. When I have the time and the attitude, when I have the readiness and willingness, then things start to change. And as we go into relationships to help others, we have to ask ourselves those same things. Are we ready and willing to invest in this relationship to help bring about healing and change? Am I ready? Do I have the time? Do I legitimately have the time to invest in this circumstance? And do I have the right attitude to do it? And if we don't have both, we really need to check ourselves and decide, is this a road we want to go down? Because we could do more harm than good if we're not ready and willing to walk with people. When we're ready but not willing, we can give emotionally based commitments with very little follow up. When we're willing but not ready, we end up giving poor advice and damage is done. So again, the greatest limiting factor in our ability to help others is our concern for our own time. <clears throat> rest of what I want to share is kind of from some notes, just again, some practical um, thoughts. Uh, Paul wasn't talking to only pastors, chaplains, and certified practitioners when he wrote things like, in Romans 15:1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus has qualified you to go and respond to the needs of others. There's no degree necessary. There's no special training. You've been equipped with all you need to give this kind of care. Matthew 25, verse 35 to 44, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Called to go and care for people. 32% of counseling centers on colleges' campuses have a wait list to get help. Mental health services in the U.S. are insufficient to meet the demand of more than half, 56% of Americans seeking help. If you act, if you're ready and willing, people will respond and you'll be able to, to help. <clears throat> 
Some wounds can't be healed by just a meal train. There's a... I'll not pick on other... There are a group of folks that think that somebody's struggling, we're going to put together a meal train and we're going we're gonna to have lunch over there. I'm not going to cast aspersions on any denomination or group of people. But there are a group of people that think a casserole fixes everything. A lot of people that think that. It's not just one group of people. It's a great thought, a great sentiment, that people are dealing with real issues that takes more than a casserole to fix. Traumatic moment is defined as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. Experience. When traumatic moments occur in the lives of others, we often feel a tug at our own hearts telling us to do something. Some of us are inclined to pray, some to volunteer, some to give. But also with these noble responses can come some less honorable emotional reactions. Again, I've already talked about those. How long is this going to take? How much is it going to cost me? Are they going to call me again? What else have I got to do? All of these things run through our head. And they're, they're somewhat natural responses because we've got lives of our own. We're doing all the, the things of daily life. We've got families. But what ought to overwhelm those responses is the compassion, the same compassion that moves Jesus. <clears throat> Even when we're ready and willing, there is still hesitation and hesitation to help others is natural, which is why it requires prayer and a supernatural mindset to willingly run into a situation to help somebody. We don't naturally run into the fire to save people. It's a supernatural mindset that causes that. One of the major hesitations people have when, when talking about helping others is we're so fixated on an HGTV fixer-upper outcome we, we want it in 30 minutes. We want it gutted, remodeled, and, and flipped for, for 10 times what we paid for it, right? All wrapped up in this nice little bow. But we got to pray to the Lord of the harvest because when we're in his harvest and people's lives are Broke, they're broken and their lives are, are completely dismantled. It's not a fixer-upper. It's starting a foundation and rebuilding a life. Brick by brick by brick by brick. And it's dirty. It's hard. It's messy. It's, and it takes a long time. And we got to be committed to that. We can't do that in our own strength. <clears throat> so real quickly, some areas that we can... Meet people where they are, love them as they are, and then walk with them. Most of you know that we, we uh, support and, and help out with Toby's place. We bring the ladies on Sunday morning. Great. I mean, it's, I love what we're doing there because it gives opportunity for relationship with these ladies. And what we want is relationships so that when they leave there, they have a place to call home. They can come here. Those ladies at Toby's place say, that is my church. So we're, we're doing something right with the ladies at Toby's place. We've got opportunities at Oliver Gospel Mission. These men are, these, these men are broken and their lives have been just, just wrecked and they need people to come alongside. And, and it, those are the two areas that we're, we're focusing on right now. But we've all got people in our lives that have dealt with traumatic experiences. <clears throat> Again, a traumatic experience is a deeply disturbing or distressing event. It's also the trauma of neglect. You know, we talk about, we think about trauma and we think about bad things happening. How about a kid growing up and the good things that ought to happen to kids not happening? That's trauma as well. A diagnosed mental health disorder or illness. Mental health condition caused by a combination of biological, psychological, and environmental factors. <clears throat> and then an undiagnosed mental health struggle. Set of emotional, spiritual, or cognitive reactions to difficult or painful experiences. A couple of things I've, I've dealt with. Most of you know, I've, I've dealt with alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, depression, anxiety, all of those things for, for years. Um, my, from my experience, um, the lesson I was watching, um, it goes into talking about things that we ought not say to people that are struggling. And there's some people that are really well-intended, but they say some stupid things. <clears throat> I was in a 
really, really bad spot. This is probably 12 years ago. I'm going to tell you from personal experience some really stupid things to say to somebody who's in, a, in that place. Hey, prayed about it. <laughs> I didn't think. What? What a novel idea. I didn't think. To of course I prayed about it. It's, it's a lack of faith. Really? Let me tell you something. If not for my faith, if not for my prayer life, I wouldn't be at a place that we could even have a conversation right now. I probably wouldn't even be here. Don't say those things to people that are struggling. God wants you to be free from that pain. He does ultimately, but he might allow it for a little bit longer. He might allow that thorn to stay because guess what? His power is made perfect in our weakness and he'll do whatever he he needs to do for us to understand that. You ever had a well-meaning, probably grandparent that said, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Show me that in scripture. What we do here is that we won't be tested beyond the limits of our faith. God will quite often allow things in our lives that we cannot handle. But there's nothing that he can't. Don't say, God's not going to put more on you can handle. Ask somebody what sin in their life is causing this. Look, you just started a conversation with this person. You don't have the right to ask that yet. I'm just going to be straight up and honest with you. Don't diagnose their problem. Don't say, you know, my cousin dealt with something similar. Maybe it's this. And you go through this list of what it could be. Thanks, Dr. Phil, but no. So if you're not sure what to say, don't say those things. A couple ideas of why trauma or dealing with people going through trauma make us uncomfortable. First, it raises too many theological questions for us. We see somebody struggling and we say, but he's a a good guy. God, why do you let bad things happen to good people? We want to have, or so many want to have this, uh, this everything's going to be just rosy once we, once we come to faith, once we come to saving faith, everything's going to be great. We have this David always slays Goliath and everything's great mentality. Sometimes David got his butt whooped. Not necessarily by Goliath. Lord laid a butt whooping on David pretty good. But we want, we want things to be wrapped up and, and neat and good. And, and it causes us to have theological questions. <clears throat> Another thing that makes us uncomfortable. Again, we don't know how long it's going to take for him to get better. It is not going to happen overnight. I promise you that. We want hurting people to be aware of our schedules more so than we are willing to be committed to theirs. It also makes us uncomfortable because we just don't know what to say and what we say feels inadequate. So we resort to cliches and, and uh, sort of trite promises, if you will. Uh, hang in there. We'll pray for you. Walk with people. You develop relationships with people. You're able to have conversations with people. You don't have to worry about what the right thing to say is. <clears throat> Another argument for going into any situation prayed up. It makes us feel guilty. Somebody else is struggling. We don't want to talk about the good things in our life because it makes us feel bad that they're experiencing bad things and we're talking about good things. We don't want to talk about the bad things because then we think, well, we're not paying attention to their bad. No, they're struggling. Don't talk about those things. Um, again, it's about conversation and, and relationship. Um, and all of those things, um, especially when we're talking about the things in our life, it's really us being focused on self rather than focused on somebody else. And lastly, there's too much need out there. I can't, I can't do it all. So why even bother? We get overwhelmed and, and uh, think that we just don't have a place in, in helping people. And, and again, that's just not the case. <clears throat> a couple common mistakes and I'll wrap up. As we're dealing with people in, in crisis and in trauma, especially as they're maybe even still in the middle of a trauma or crisis or just coming out of it. Um, and they're telling us these things. One of the major mistakes is that we don't wait for an invitation to speak into their life. Here's a shocker for most of us. 
Not everybody wants or needs us to fix their problems. Most are telling you because they want you to walk alongside them, but they don't need you to fix their problem. We didn't wait for an invitation. Number two common mistake, we didn't lead with grace, but rather with advice and, and uh, correction. You really ought to do it this way. If I were you, I would do this rather than with grace and love. <clears throat> Number three, we try to fix the problem for them and not with them. And again, many talked about this the other night. It's, it then becomes about us and not about them. Again, we're walking with people. And all three of these mistakes are, being, are, are made by being self-focused rather than focused on the needs of others. <clears throat> Everyone wants a deeper relationship with God, but not many want the deeper situation or struggle required to develop that relationship. In Daniel, we have a story that the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted God. A deeper relationship requires a deeper situation or deeper, a deeper struggle. Romans 5, 3 and 4, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. I've talked about that before. There's a formula there. Suffering enables perseverance, which produces character, which releases hope. Hope's not possible without suffering and perseverance. There is no hope without those things. And we can't shortcut our way to hope. Suffering and perseverance are necessary ingredients for hope to arrive. <clears throat> Real quickly, and uh, Sam talked on, on most of this, um, safety, stability, and support over time equal healing. Safety is grace, meeting people where they are, loving them as they are. It's the foundation. That's where we start. That cultivates the ground for seeds of truth to later be sown. Remember, you're the person that God chose for this person to come to. <clears throat> for a period of time when we first enter into somebody's situation, their trial, their struggle, their crisis, safety is the only and primary concern. Safety for them. And maybe that's physical safety. Maybe it's getting them out physically of a situation where they're not safe. But ultimately them being safe to feeling safe enough to share with us what's going on in their life. And after they begin to feel safe, they can start to move to stability. Stability is truth. Grace and truth have to be balanced. Henry Cloud says that too much grace without truth, people will never change. Or too much truth without grace, people will feel condemned and never change. Lastly, support is the community. Most clinical studies have shown that one of the best long-term mental health wellnesses or leaders to mental health wellness is a loving, trusting relationship. It's not a counselor. It's not meds. It's not treatment. But it's community. It's home. When Jesus saw the helpless and hurting, he had compassion. He told the disciples, here they are. Same thing he's telling us. He's telling us how to do it. Go love your neighbor. Love them well. By seeking justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for being so good to us, Lord. Thank you for this time tonight. Lord, uh, please just keep us mindful of the fact that, uh, that you have called us into the harvest. Lord, you've not saved us from our sin and from ourselves to sit in our, in our homes and, and not interact. Lord, you've called us to be in the harvest. You've called us to be a laborer to those that you love so much. So Lord, just clothe us, Lord, with the humility that comes in knowing that it's your harvest and not ours, Lord. Give us the ability to uh, build relationships and develop relationships and not be self-focused or, or focused on how this affects us or, or how, how am I going to benefit or whatever it is, Lord. Remove any of those thoughts from us that we would love 
freely and we would love well those neighbors that are struggling, Lord. There's so much hurt. We don't need any more examples of how much hurt there is. We just need more examples of of how you want us to love. So, Lord, uh, just pray that you would continue to enable us for that. Equip us for all good works. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.